1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Okay, here's the companies I want to work with. So I just started calling them. And I don't know how I did that, because I'm not that kind of person, but I did. I just started calling them and trying to schedule appointments. And I remember one of the first ones I was able to get was Zenota, and Zenota said, yeah, sure, come on in on Thursday, something like this. And we don't know who you are, but come on in. We're happy to look at work, because it's free for them to see work, you know? So I got that meeting, but I hadn't designed anything. I remember just realizing, oh my God, I just got a meeting, and, but I have nothing to show them.
3: Hi everyone, I'm Amy. I'm Jamie and this is Clever. Today we're talking to interdisciplinary designer Todd Bracher. Todd studied at Pratt and then headed to Europe where he lived and worked for over a decade. While there, he got his master's from Denmark's design school. He's had jobs running Tom Dixon's design studio and as creative director of George Jensen.
4: He launched his namesake studio in 1999 and has since been featured in all the design rags and won a slew of prestigious awards. Now, Todd Bracher Studio guides some of the most prestigious brands around the world. Brands like 3M, Capellini, Jaguar, and Human Scale to realize strategic differentiation through expert based design. Let's talk to Todd to find out what he means by that.
2: My name is Todd Bracher, and I'm based in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm a strategic industrial designer. And why I do what I do is I really enjoy the business component of design and how we can help affect companies in a positive way.
3: So we want to go back to before you were a strategic industrial designer, and we want to know where you grew up and what your family was like and what kind of kid you were. And, you know, tell us what a little top breacher was like.
2: I grew up on, on Long Island, just outside of Queens here in New York. I Grown up in a really simple suburbia, My mother a mother who was a lifelong school teacher, a career school teacher. Although she did, to be fair, break off to become a temporarily a deputy mayor of our village and get like, involved in politics to help improve the condition of the town we were in and sort of inspiring in another way. She was a kind of, I guess you can say, a, a feminist at the time and uh, someone who really believed in getting things done and regardless of what it took to get it done. So she was someone that. You know, grabbed the bull by the horns, kind of thing, and took over to help improve our condition. So it's really inspiring as a young person to watch this, this woman really go from being a school teacher to really helping affect change in our community. And then once she did, she went back to being a school teacher, which is what she loved. And my father was a cabinet maker since forever, a woodworker, and worked a lot in the 80s, when, the, up until the late 80s, when in the early nineties when that whole bubble sort of burst here in New York as an architectural woodworker doing fit outs for buildings throughout Manhattan. And then that industry really relocated down to the Carolinas. So he stayed loosely in in that business, uh, mainly as a carpenter and taught me how to build things, I guess you can say, and work with my hands. But I'd, I'd like to say more taught me what integrity should be about and how to appreciate everyone involved in the chain and not just the folks at the top or wherever we hope to land one day. It's everyone's involved. And, and my brother was the same way. So everyone that he touched in his life then I think was also equally valued. And then those sort of attributes, I guess, that I take very serious and also continue through my work. So my father was very much about integrity. My mother was very much about the inquisitive nature of things and trying to understand things and educate yourself about things. So that sort of combination, I guess, led me to where I am today.
4: Hmm. Hmm. And how did your creativity start to manifest as a kid?
2: So my father let me build things and experiment. And he was very good with his hands. Of course, he was able to build anything we want. And I remember one day as a kid too, just you know, in, our, in our home, sort of admiring the furniture in our bedroom. It was really beautiful. It's all like built in. It was really kind of modern. And then this was in like the 80s. And and it was really beautiful. And then I learned years later that my, my dad actually had built it. And I had no idea. Looked, considering very modest life we had, it was all custom-built furniture for a home because he built it. And that, to me, was sort of amazing. It didn't come from a shop and didn't look like someone built it up or to that way. So I think that that sort of thing triggered a way to think about our sort of built surroundings can, can be built by us. It doesn't have to come from somewhere. We can control it, so to speak. And then my mother, seeing her as she, as I mentioned, getting involved in politics, getting involved with solving problems, you know, and I think that's beautiful. And so so these sort of things sort of all pile together. And I think sort of tangently, my brother, too, is a huge influence on me. And, and fortunately, he passed away on September 21, 2005. He was a Navy pilot and completely different. He was the smart one from the family. And, and he influenced me in a lot of ways. He led me to understand that intelligence doesn't have to be mathematics. Intelligence could exist in a lot of different ways, and we can really excel. And I know he used to really support me and what I was doing in a way that I think might have been a little bit unusual for someone in the military to say, like, what, what you're doing is important, and what you're doing can affect lives in other ways and I think just that acceptance and just someone that you know was, was highly respected as an officer in the Navy to understand that even the world that I lived in has relevance and in some ways a value. And that, that sort of thinking for me was also very influential. And I guess it's, it's sort of like being an artist in some ways. In the early days as a designer, you're a kind of artist and you tend to not know where you fit in, if you know mm-hmm. what I
4: mean. Your brother was older?
2: Yeah, he was two and a half years older, yeah. He died at
4: uh, 33. Oh, I'm so sorry. That that's. No, it's fine. <laughs> but but growing up, having an older brother, did you feel like you had an ally? Was there any competition between you guys? Did you feel like you were best friends, but with two different styles of thinking?
2: <laughs> yeah, we. It's so. It almost sounds really boring because my brother and I were perfectly good friends. We never fought. We never had issues. We never I don't understand siblings that don't get along. I'm not saying they don't have a right. I just don't relate to it. But we both had the same crazy thing where he when he was I mean four years old, he wanted to fly planes. And me when I was four years old knew I wanted to do what I'm doing. And we were so fortunate to have family that was able to support hey, if that's what you want to do, that's what go right ahead and do. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that was, you know, huge
4: knowing that you wanted to be a designer since you were four years old, was it an an obvious choice to go to Pratt? What were your college years like? What was that chapter like?
2: To be more transparent, more honest, like I wouldn't say I wanted to be a designer when I was four because even today folks don't really know what designers are. So I think (laughs) it it was the idea around, for example, I love drawing. I knew drawing was the way for me. I didn't know what that meant, but it was a sort of gateway for most that go into the creative world. I didn't necessarily want to be an artist, but I just wanted to draw. And so I remember thinking medical illustration seemed interesting because I found myself really drawn to science and drawing for me was a way of sort of dissecting something and studying it. And you're analyzing something to the degree that I think anyone possibly could even more than a photographer because you're, you're completely recording it. And I think there's something very interesting about that. And I remember one of the exams to get into Pratt to become a drawer was to design a device for the future. The idea was around how to survive in you know, 500 years. How will people be stressed? How will they be surviving? What does that device look like? Would it be any different than people live today? Like, it was a very general question. I remember finding it really interesting. At that time, pollution was a big conversation. I came up with this idea that folks are going to need a kind of respirator in like 500 years to like survive. They can't just walk outside. And then the thought around that was, but it shouldn't just look like a respirator. It needs to look beautiful and needs to look like part of a normal life, like a kind of fashion. So I did these sort of fashion designs of what a respirator might look like in 500 years. And in a way that's totally acceptable and beautiful and you'd go to work wearing it and like you wouldn't be this sort of strange thing. It would be normal and accepted. So within that, I started to get into the process of it. Like what creates this thing? How do you solve this problem? Mm -hmm. I remember Mm -hmm. finishing it and then asking the school, I don't know what I just did, but what do you call that? (laughs) I remember very directly, the admin folks said, that's industrial design. And I said, well, that's what I want to do.
4: I love that story because I feel like there are so many kids who, like you, grow up figuring out how things are made and feeding their curiosity, but they don't know there's a profession for it. They don't know what to pin their hopes and dreams on. And I really want there to be, I don't know, I want to teach kids about industrial design so they can get stoked about it from a younger age. (laughs) Totally,
2: totally. I mean, the (laughs) beauty of industrial design is it's different every day and it could be whatever you want it to be. There's so many Mm -hmm. versions of it. So you can really tailor to what you find enjoyable, interesting, uh, where you want to make change or fix or improve where your expertise is and it doesn't have to be the type of profession where you're doing things that you don't you don't love, you know. And I think that is such an incredible thing. I can't imagine doing design that I don't want to be doing. It doesn't exist because there's so many versions of what we do. So and I even think about it, if someone says, Can you please design me a birthday cake, I'm super happy because it's completely I'll have to educate myself. I have to understand how to make cake. I have to understand how big fits in the oven. What does it taste like? And how do we want people to experience? What does it feel like when you cut it? What does it look like when you share it? You know, all the things that come to mind. And then you can control and and create this experience around something. I don't know. It's endlessly interesting. From an armchair to a birthday cake to fragrance bottle. I mean, it's all, okay, what's this problem now? Let's sit down and understand this. And you become a kind of expert in it. and you become someone that uh, starts to see things that that you didn't see before about material, about textures, about machining processes or whatever it might be. And, and then how it affects people's lives and how people understand things and how it deals with the ecology or the sustainability aspects. So there's so many layers. So that to me is, so
4: interesting. Oh, and I think one of the great things about it, too, is you start to see why things have been done a certain way for a million years. And, and it has to do with manufacturing yeah. or a certain yeah. material and availability. And you start to see how you can change no, it or absolutely. why it should be changed. Absolutely. And seeing those vacancies is just as exciting, I think. No, and
2: it's almost maddening to a certain extent because you start getting frustrated. And I think most people <laughs> hit this point. But as a designer, you have to, like, check yourself. And you say ah, uh, why is this thing like this? Who did that? Why, does it, why is it this way? And why does it have to be this way? And then I think most people go, ah, oh, that's annoying. Why does it have to be this way? And then they go <laughs> on with their lives. But a designer can stop and then change it. And I think that's interesting. You have, suddenly that's your role. You're not there to just live and pass through the world. You identify what doesn't work or you identify the opportunity and then you go out and fix mm-hmm. it. And I think that, that to me is really powerful.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I want to know what happened after Pratt because yeah, you spent. Got crazy. I know. I want to know about this <laughs> crazy ten years working in Europe. So tell me more about where you lived, who you worked for, why did you go there, why did you stay for so long? I, I want to know all about it.
2: Hopefully, it will not take me ten years to answer this question. <laughs> it's um, yeah, it's, a, it's pretty wild. You know, Pratt is really conceptual and fun, and Pratt's really good for a school that helps you think. and And then I finished school and I started doing jobs that had no thinking involved. And I was working for a company. We were doing spice racks and remote control caddies and things like literally boxes to hold the remote controls because everyone had like four remote controls at the time, so next to your sofa. It had nothing to do with the science and the beauty and the culture. It was just make these commodities cheap as possible. And and so there's that, by the way, layer of design, which doesn't have to exist in the way it does, and but it does. And I was mm-hmm. ended up getting thrown into that. And, and I thought, oh, boy, and I started working this way. And, you know, I'm living in New York and living with, with a roommate and we're costing a fortune for rent. And I remember we were here a year and a half working and, and like zero money you can save. And you're, you're doing this job I didn't like. And I'm looking at all this going, this isn't at all what I wanted out of design. This isn't what I expected my life to start to turn out to be. I was 22, 23, and I learned about this thing called the Fulbright Grant. And I don't know how I learned about it. I honestly have no idea. And one day I come home, and I think, you know what, I'm going to apply it for a Fulbright grant. So Fulbright's a, you know is a, a government grant, and you apply to go somewhere in the world to Fulbright location or relationship city and if you make a proposal and if they pick yours mm. you can go and execute your idea and, and I remember say, proposing the idea of wanting to go study Scandinavian design, understand it and bring it back to the US. I had gone to Milan. I learned about the furniture fair in Milan in, in 1995 I think it was 1995. Mm. It was my first show. My roommate knew about it so while I was still at Pratt And so we went to see it and I was completely transformed. I had seen furniture for the first time. I had seen poetry, beauty. I had seen theater. I mean, this was, that show completely did it for me. I came back saying, I need to go into furniture and I want to be part of this world. And then I started working freelance for a designer here. And he said, you know what? You might want to look at Scandinavian design because it's similar to your mentality, your logic. And they do beautiful furniture. They have a great history. And I said, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to apply to learn about furniture design in Scandinavia and bring that knowledge back to the U.S. <laughs> so I applied. Three weeks later, poof, I'm in Denmark. Wow. I didn't know anything about Denmark. I didn't know what language they spoke. I had known zero. When I arrived in Denmark, like it was literally with a bag in my hand. <laughs> and it was, now how do you hustle a life? Like It all started from scratch.
4: Yeah. So you land in Denmark with a bag on your shoulder and uh, a, a dream in your heart. Right?
2: Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> completely. It was what do you do now, right? I arrived yeah. in Denmark and. I literally walk off the airplane. I had nowhere to go. I didn't know where to go. I didn't have any idea. I just knew school would start on a Monday and I was there, I guess on a Thursday and I needed to just now find somewhere to live. I needed to just figure it out. So there was no like internet then <laughs> or it was nothing. So what I do is just like walk around and I find a hotel that I think I can afford. And I like go in and, and I get a room. Like it's kind of that stupid. And I chatted with one of the guys that was working at the front desk who happened to be a foreign guy, a Turkish guy, and he started giving me tips. He's like, Well you're foreign, so this is what you need to know. You need to get this newspaper at this time to get find out the apartment listings and like he started helping me out. And so it was kind of crazy. And and it was like three or four days later I had met a woman in a supermarket I was looking on, like, the board. I couldn't read anything, and I was trying to find an apartment. I was looking on, like, the papers hanging in in the supermarkets very similar to here, and I see a bunch of phone numbers, and I just started calling numbers thinking I'm going (laughs) to luck out and find, you know, something. I don't even know what the numbers were for. And this woman can tell I was completely lost, so she asked me, do you need a place to stay? I'm thinking, this is incredible. I'm like, yeah, I do. And so, long story short, she took me to her place, which turns out is like literally right in the middle of Copenhagen, right on top of a George Jensen shop, the very company that I ended up creative directing some years later. So it's sort of incredibly cyclical how this all came. And she gives me a room. There's this tiny little room. She says, you know, it's yours as long as you need it until you find a place. And every night they were like playing jazz like super loud. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm just jet lagged and tired and I'm like trying to figure out how to find an apartment. <laughs> and, and she keeps inviting me and in for the, her husband to come in and listen to music. And I'm like, no, it's fine. I'm being really shy. and I'm like not interested and thanks, but no thanks. And, and eventually I found an apartment and life started to move on. And I remember the last night, she's asked me, for, you just come in and just come relax and listen to some, some music. And, and I f- go in and I find out it's like jazz I'm hearing every night. Is her husband playing jazz? He's playing sax. And I'm like, my God, he was incredible. I mean, the guy was amazing. And she said, anytime you want to hear him play, whatever, just come back and we'll happily invite you back up or down at the club and all this kind of stuff. And turns out he was one of the most famous jazz musicians in Denmark. And I had no <laughs> idea. And I was just like living in this guy's apartment thinking, man, they'd just keep playing the radio all over the loud every night. And I'm like, kind of <laughs> not taking advantage of like, what a beautiful moment. And I've just completely walked right around that one, you know? And so anyhow, and I just had these like wild little scenarios that just kept happening to me over and over from, you know, Tour de France cyclists in (laughs) Italy, helping me get to Cappellini meetings to, I mean, it's just the craziest things would happen when you're just walking around trying to find how to get from A to B when you're not in your daily routine. I think that's the beauty of travel and like my 10 years overseas was there was no daily routine it was trying to take every day a step towards your ultimate goal and whatever it took to get you to that step and you just like walk in a straight line and so therefore you end up in these crazy scenarios that would help you get there
3: I feel like that's like the internet is a blessing and a curse because I I remember when we didn't have internet and you had to like Figure out how to do things, or like meet up with people, or try to find a payphone. You know, and there were all kinds of adventures.
2: You're right, and you have these fond memories that shaped your life of the people you've encountered that you never would have met. You know, have misunderstandings which turn into, you know, just memories and beautiful sort of experiences. And those experiences are the tools that. I know I live by, I need, and I'm assuming everyone needs. And as a designer, I I leverage those tools. I remember these, you know, certain weird things that might have happened. I make a note of it and then I can use it later in life, you know. So anyhow, I spent two and a half years in Denmark and doing a master's course in the design school there. And I had been very much like my mother now because while I was there, I was and saying, guys, we need to be in Milan. We need to be showing in Milan. You know, Scandinavia is great, Mil- Copenhagen's interesting. It's beautiful, but it's not Milan, guys. We need to get down there if we're going to show our work. We got to show it down there and mm. you know, get in the game. And, and I remember the school really gave me a lot of resistance. It was not a popular yes. opinion. Scandinavia was the place to be. Copenhagen was the capital. And you're talking about Milan. It's alien to them. So. I remember really, really being frustrated by that. So I went down the show because the furniture show was coming up, the furniture fair. And I went down with uh, a Swedish, a Swiss and Icelandic friend and myself. So we were all foreign to Denmark and the Danes weren't really on board. So the four of us went down and we had got sponsorship and from all sorts of companies to pay for it to get us down there. And, and we showed in Milan in the first uh, Salone Satellite the very first satellite back in the day and now the satellite, you know, I'm assuming you've, you've been to it. It's a beautiful, fun yeah. platform for young designers. So it was the very, very first one. And so we're showing and, and there's like Giulio Cappellini walking by and Marozzi's walking by. Like these figures of force in our industry, they're like coming by to see what's up and see your work yeah. And it sounds so nerdy because it's in this like design furniture world. We sort of joke around and say we're like famous plumbers, you know, like nobody really (laughs) really cares, you know what I mean? So anyhow, to see these folks coming to see our work was huge, you know? These were were the people that were shaping our industry, but we realized that these folks are actually shaping our culture. And that's where it started to click. After that show, I went back to Copenhagen and realized I need to move to Milan. And so... I don't know what it was. A few months later, down in Milan, and just set up shop. Same thing. Find a place to live. Get I need a job. Start working part time. You know, go around and interview. Try to learn the language as fast as possible. So in about three months, I was able to at least hold some kind of conversation, have some value for the companies I was working with. I was working part time, so I could pay my rent and food, and etc. And then I had two days for myself where I can then go out and now try to crack the companies. And I remember my idea was to now call all the companies and just say, I'm going to show you my work. Internee had used to publish basically who's who of who to contact in the industry, sort of index guide. And so it made it really easy to just say, okay, here's the 50 Mm -hmm. companies I want to work with. So I just started calling them. And I don't know how I did that because I'm not that kind of person, but I did. I just started calling them and trying Mm -hmm. to schedule appointments. And I remember one of the first ones I was able to get was Zenota. And Zenota said, yeah, sure, come on in on Thursday, something like this. And we don't know who you are, mm-hmm. but come on in. We're happy to look at work because it's great <laughs> for them to see work, you know. So I got that meeting, but I hadn't designed anything. I remember just realizing, oh, my God, I just got a meeting, and, but I have nothing to show them. So I literally spent that weekend designing 10 pieces of furniture <laughs> whatever I thought I was like in this super, by the way, when you're traveling and you're living overseas by yourself, you don't have any friends, you don't have any family. Like it's kind of great. You can be completely selfish and in your own world, working around the clock in something you completely obsessed in love with without having to like apologize for it, you know, and, or like feel Mm. bad or didn't call or didn't, you know, you don't even eat, you don't even think about it. You're just doing your thing. (laughs) And I think that's what, those 10 years were very much about it was super selfish, to be fair and be clear about that. But at the same time, it was
5: mm-hmm.
2: a real obsession with understanding what is this thing that I'm really in love with. And, and what happened was I designed these 10 pieces of furniture and showed up for my meeting. And I guess to sort of give you what happened, it was September 13, 2001. And I remember walking into the meeting, everybody was just you know, shell-shocked and you know I was not clear i'm also a new yorker and i just had spoke to my brother the night before they were leaving for afghanistan that morning and it was sort of like okay this is you know, a lot going on and here i am to show like some drawings of like sofas and things you know so i remember feeling like it was really an awful time it just you know to be talking about anything like this and just didn't feel relevant and but they were so cordial and I remember I was really overdressed.
5: <laughs> <And I>
4: just, <laughs> oh, that's so cute. Yeah,
2: it was, so, it was hilarious. <laughs> I guess I was 24. I don't know what to expect. And and I had these like really complicated like boards to show. and like, It was just too much. And anyway, I had shown, I lay out on the table, these 10 designs. And I'm sitting there with the owner, Leonora, and her daughter, and Daniele, who's the technical director. And I remember we were sitting there and, they're looking at it and they're asking me some questions. I didn't really understand. They were very friendly and they said, "Okay, you're from New York," and I said, "Yeah." And I said, "I'm sorry, you know." They've been very, very nice. Meeting was 15-20 minutes long. They asked if they can keep the drawings, and I thought, "Well, okay, I guess." So I like leave them, gave them my phone number. I had just gotten a cell phone, which back then everybody nearly had them, so it was sort of normal. And I remember they said to me something right before I was leaving. They said, Do "You understand." How we work here, and I said, No, I don't. <laughs> and They said, Well, exactly. They said we get 300 proposals a week for all sorts of things. I said, Okay. I said, They said, So you're one. And I said, We get 300 a week, and every year we make one sofa, one table, and one chair. And so they said, What do you think the odds are that we will work with you? And I thought, Oh, Jesus, you know, I'm like, I don't know. I said, Honestly, I have no idea. I had nothing to say. I was like, not I wasn't like depressed about it. I just didn't know what to say. I'm like, okay, I don't have an answer. And they said, okay, so just understand this is difficult, you know. I said, okay, fair enough. And then, mind you, I was just a few months in Milan. So I'm still new. I, thank you very much. It's all great. And I remember I walk out, I walk across the street and waiting for the bus to get back to Milan. It's like a half hour travel back. And then my phone rings and I thought, Okay, nobody's got my number so this is sort of odd and I answer it and it's Danielle the technical director who I just left 10 minutes earlier and and he says how are you and I said I'm fine I just what's up you know do you need anything and he said yeah yeah he goes this one sofa he goes send me your drawings tonight and he says because we're going to make your piece of furniture and he was so excited to tell me that and he was was laughing 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 (laughs) and he just said it was so much fun to make it really stressful for me (laughs) (laughs) and (laughs) he said and I, oh man! Like it was like I don't need this torture, you know. And but I was so excited, of course, all night. I'm like <laughs> drawing the whole thing up and got it back to them, and and that became Freud's sofa, which was my first piece of furniture to go into production. And and it was fun because that was for author. That's like playing for the Yankees your first, yeah, you know, day Yankees. out of training camp. So it was really the perfect entry. And um, they had this like hilarious sense of humor <laughs> where they would sort of torture me about like. So you, you're working for a lot of other companies, right? Like, this isn't your first one. Like, they're doing all this sort of, like, torture <laughs> on me. And uh, I'm like, no, this is my first. And the, it, it, but they were so happy. This and,
4: sweet, overdressed kid with, like, yeah, complicated no, exactly. boards. <laughs> and <laughs> so, the story so goes awesome.
2: From those 10 pieces I've showed them, uh, they made three things over the four years ahead. So it was kind of a wild ride that they would pick anything and then to pick three of them it definitely gave me confidence. It maybe helped a little bit with future meetings and things, but ultimately I think my takeaway from that whole experience was there's like opportunity here to do something different. What I was doing at the time wasn't, I don't want to say it was groundbreaking by any means, but somehow I had a little bit of a different point of view. And I was just saying like, why do we have to have things look like the way they used to? Can Mm -hmm. Can they be different? So I was doing like asymmetrical furniture, thin things, very light things, somewhat minimalistic. I call it essentialist. And this was my natural way of looking at things. And I was just driving that through the furniture. And that was somehow very different from what was going on. And it was very low-tech, kind of, you know, you can see how things are made. I didn't want to cover or hide things. I wanted honesty. Like, it was all that. This is how I felt things should be. And so somehow it happened to line up with, this sort of emerging trend, which is what's around us all now. And so I felt like caught that last
1: train out of the station, I guess you can say. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
3: It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
4: Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. and they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio instead of reading you another let's be honest boring ad script wix studio just sent me this wild looking alice in wonderland themed website to scroll through and tell you about so whoa this is not the web i'm used to there's something called mouse parallax which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen and as i scroll down it's like i'm falling down the rabbit hole Well, that does sound like a pretty important chapter in your life, that whole decade in Europe. Yeah, talk about being a rookie with a great record. (laughs) That's a great first work experience.
2: So, yeah, one. it was more a big piece to my life there. It was sort of a by the way. I had a a parallel life of a girlfriend, and she was French, and she was in Paris, and I had actually met her in Denmark. And so we had a, a long relationship where we'd see each other most weekends I'd come up to Paris or she'd come down to Milan or wherever the heck I was. And I remember when I met her in Copenhagen, it's sort of interesting. She had said, what do you do? She was a business student. And I remember you know, always struggling with explaining what design is I still today <laughs> struggle with. But I said to her, well, I, I do design. And she, she said, oh, okay, I know what that is. She says, like Tom Dixon. I thought, well, oh, that's interesting. Like, how do you know his name? And she says, well, Habitat, this shop, you know, this British shop, she goes, it's my favorite store. They have a great shop in France. I live near it. I lo- and I love what he does. He's a creative director for, for Habitat. I thought, well, okay, cool. Yeah, exactly. One day I'd love to be like Tom Dixon. I say he's, he's fantastic. And he understands design at a level that I wish I could one day. And, and um, so that was her understanding of what I did, I wanted to do. And so... We had this deal that I would go, she was moving back to Paris. I was going to move to Milan and give me two years and then I'll move to Paris and life will continue. And so what happened was literally packed up in Milan. Time's up. Time to go to Paris now. And I'll never forget this. I'm having dinner with a friend of mine the night before. I'm leaving the next morning with the truck I rented. So I'm like all set. I get a phone call. And it's Tom Dixon's office. And they offered me a job to come to London. And the night before, I'm going. And I remember I arrived the next morning in Paris saying, you know, you're not going to believe this, but I got a job offer in, in London to work with Dixon. So she, she said, well, that is kind of incredibly coincidental. You got to do it. So it took a few weeks. And then we figured out how to do it. And I ended up in London. And so, you know, it was kind of wild. And then I spent five and a half years mm-hmm in London and working really closely with Tom to help support his business. And for me, that was hugely transformational.
4: What was your role for Tom Dixon?
2: I worked as a senior designer there. There was at the time it was Tom, a business partner, secretary, and then another designer (laughs) and myself. So it was super tiny. And when I left, it was 17 people. So yeah, it grew really, really rapidly. And it was, you know, pretty hardcore boot camp. With Tom, there was you know a lot of different things to do, and a lot of a lot of a lot of different roles he had to, to play I was doing from architecture mm-hmm. to product design to you know holding the hand of the clients or you name it, traveling all over the place like it was wild ride for for a bunch of years and But I remember asking Tom, you know what is it you love about design because he was busy with Habitat. He was immediately just art directing or creative directing the Tom Dixon brand. It's not like he's sitting there doing drawings and we're supporting him with CAD or something he's he's really coming in and saying you know do this thing should be shiny or do this thing it should have this shape or very general kind of direction and then he'd take off and then come back and push it again and take off and so I asked him I said Tom what do you love about design why are you doing this what is it you really get out of it you know he used to will and like be involved with the making of it but now at the time he wasn't he was very much a creative director and and he said, you know, I love the business of design more than designing. And, and I always thought, well, that's, first of all, strange, Tom, because you don't look like a business guy. You don't sound like a business guy. You didn't go to business school. So that doesn't make sense to me. And I remember, like, processing that. And then about two seconds later, I went, wait a second, that's what I love about design. <laughs> and I said, You know, and I said, I didn't go to business school. I don't know the vocabulary. I like, had identified immediately... I I get it. And, and, and I, that, that moment saw also Tom's brilliance as a business designer and saw his brilliance as a visionary and, and sort of realized that, wow, that's my future, not doing design, sitting there in the CAD and all that, like that is part of it. Yeah, I get it. But there's a bigger role. That's so much more interesting. You know, it's really like seeing colors for the first time. I mean, it was so powerful. Just that conversation. It was a, 15-minute conversation and knowing if anyone knows Tom he's not someone to have a 15-minute conversation with anyone <laughs> yeah, so, so that's like the longest conversation <laughs> he's probably ever had in his life and uh and it was for me transformational
3: and what an experience
4: yeah and what became of the very understanding French girlfriend
2: um time ran out <laughs> Yeah.
4: Oh, she, she couldn't wait any <laughs> yeah, longer. Yeah, much.
2: Time, yeah, life just said, you know, it's just not going to go there any longer. Like, time's just not going to work out.
4: Okay, so let's fast forward to your studio now, to your current professional world. Yeah. Can you give us the overview of all the different types of things you do in your studio and what you're particularly passionate about?
2: I feel like we're in a position, or I'm in a spot in my life where I also for the most part, know what I want. And, and that's an unusual place to be because I feel like it's always been in exploratory mode. And now I feel like I'm in also an exploratory mode, but in an execution mode. Like now I see i want to focus on this space and see how we can really push and now hopefully affect some change, positive change around us and start to, I guess you can say, kind of leverage the tools we've been sharpening all these years. So the studio right now, we're four people and We keep it relatively small, and it's a bit of a deception because we're four internally, but we're about 19 totally. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is what I think is an unusual model because I'm a little bit all over the place. I think any designer today needs to be. I think you need to know coding. You need to know machining. You need to know materials and processes. You need to know how to deal with art direction, you need to know how to write strategies. I mean, I feel like there's all this type of work that we have to do today because design for me is really holistic, you know? And, and I think, mm-hmm. so I look at design from now, really the business or the CEO or the business leader's eyes, and they want to go to this specific destination. They want to reach this audience. They want to reach this market or whatever it might be. And so we are sharing their point of view. And to get there, it's more than just creating a nice product. And so for years and years, I would make a product design for a company, an object, a piece of furniture, wherever it might be, and, and it would do okay in the market. I would give it to them, and I'd realize they don't understand what I'm giving them. They don't understand how to communicate it. They don't understand who to communicate it to. They, they don't know what really to do with it, other than they, it looks nice on the website or it looks nice in the shop. And that's not enough. That's not a strategic way to look at it. So focus on building a really nimble way to tackle a whole variety of problems. So what, we, what I do is engage with a company. We try to find, first of all, their pain points, like what is it we can really do to help a company succeed in what they're trying to do, understand how do they come to market, understand where do they get supply in their supply chain, and I really understand from A to Z, provide sort of strategy around what the product needs to do, and then provide thinking around how do we launch it? How do we communicate it? So it's really A to Z thinking, but I can't staff 200 people or I don't want to staff 200 people and, and it makes no sense to you because sometimes mm-hmm. we need our direction, sometimes we don't. So why carry this to expense and burden when we don't need it? Because then you start servicing the debt. You start taking on work you don't want. You don't believe it. So what we've done is created this model. We have a core team that deals with the core, expertise and then we have the satellite team that prov- that we bolt in that provides really high level expertise only when we need it so it creates this really nimble process and really nimble I guess you can say team and so, and the satellite
4: team yeah. is a network of of subcontractors that you work with yeah, or yeah,
2: that's right. consultants they're, okay. they're, all, they're all they have their own businesses they're all established folks they have their own resources as well so so, for example, when a company needs, you know, very complex plastic component, we have one of the world's best plastic engineers. He gets plugged into it. We're doing a lighting mm-hmm. project. We need optical physicists. This person goes into it, anthropologist, color theorist, and it goes on and on. We need a poet. We have it. When the idea is, well, we need to find. Wait,
3: give me a scenario where you need a poet.
2: <laughs> a lot of it's in copywriting. <laughs> Sometimes, no, 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 it's a good, it's a good question actually. Sometimes it's more for me. And it's more for me sometimes to help <laughs> communicate a singularity. And it sounds really complicated, but the idea that I'm always trying to find the singular meaningful message. Because mm. that's what connects to people. That's what it, people are. I think to me, when you have something to say, say, if you have one thing, say it clearly and say it singularly. Yeah,
3: and it's hard to do that.
2: It really is. And, and, and that's where a mathematician helps me. That's where poetry helps me. It's folks to help weed through language and get us to the essential so i ultimately would design a product get frustrated that it wouldn't succeed as we all would have hoped in the market sometimes so we end up typically engaging with senior leadership of these companies helping them steer their strategies and their products and their communication so mm-hmm. it becomes more holistic so we're doing a lot of design advising so we we act as creative directors for a handful of companies to help them steer strategically. And then we also act as strategic product designers for companies. So we, we can, they can act independently of these two, or we can combine them for companies as needed. And so all the way from helping understand supply chain to, to launching a product to the market through the communication. And we would realize quickly on that we ended up replacing a lot of ad agencies because the ad agencies didn't understand where the products would come from. And where we would.
3: Strategic design for me is really difficult to understand. Yeah. So it, it would be great to just get a sense of like, whether there are certain procedures that you do for every project, yeah. or if there's something you personally do, like some sort of ritual or, or something to like get your brain working. I would love to hear more about that.
2: Strategic design for me, it means providing truth. Okay. So when a client has us creating work, I don't care about my opinion and I don't think they care about my opinion. And I don't think the folks buying the product or living with our product cares about our opinion. I don't think they care about me. I think they care about a truth, something that's meaningful to them. So if we're designing a lamp, I don't think the shape of the lamp is important to me. And I don't think you care what Todd was feeling that day, to see what that shape looks like. I think you care about, does it throw good light? Is it the right price? Does it, you know, is it the right size? Does it do all, is it the right material? Does it, is it sustainable? I mean, you sort of go through this long list and then, oh, by the way, does it look nice? You know, I think that's important. But for me, there's plenty of people that make things that look beautiful, that have terrible light, that cost too much, or oh, wow, you can go through the long list. But that's okay because people still buy it because it's beautiful and that's great and that's fine if that's what they want. And there's plenty of designers that do things that are about them and that's totally okay. It's just not what I do. I don't feel comfortable with that. It's maybe my own insecurity. I I want to do things that are based in truth, based in physics, based in measurable decisions. I mean, every design goes through thousands of decisions. So every one of those decisions my opinion, needs to be expert-connected. Someone, including me, someone I'm connected to, one of our partners, has to help decide what is the best decision, and then we go forward. And it's never a drawing. Like I feel like most of our work can be designed in Microsoft Word, and it's, it's a bullet list of things it has to do. And if you materialize what that list is, we have the right solution. And if it balances the business needs, the human needs, and the contemporary culture, the right combination to result in. So that's why we work with all these experts. So we might have a chief medical officer. We might have biological light scientists. We might have circadian scientists. We might have whatever it is to support our decision process so that it's true, not just opinion. And I think the future of design is not designers. Mm -hmm. The future of design are scientists. The future of design are physicists. The people that deliver truth. I think that's interesting to me.
4: I do think the future of design is that interpretation of all of that data. I agree with you that it's not just beauty, and it's not just making something that looks beautiful. It really is about amassing and filtering and interpreting all of these different factors so that you get the best possible scenario.
2: I'm glad you said said that because I... I actually completely agree with you, and I find that's the role we have because we're not scientists, and uh, so what we're doing is editing and pulling together the target. you know we're the, yeah. editors, the curators of it, and so that's exactly true if it, maybe this helps frame it a little bit differently and you I totally agree <laughs> with you This is sort of one way I look at it is I say let's walk in the park you know and there's two trees in front of us. The tree to the left I don't think you single out and say, I really like it. I like the tree on the right. I mean, you might,
1: uh-huh. right?
2: I don't think you'd say the tree, the tree on the left looks a little too tall. The tree on the right looks kind of 1980s. Like, I, I don't think we critique nature as we would, let's say, two cars, right? So if there's two cars parked in the street, you could say, I don't like that blue or that shape of the door. I don't really like so much, or I love this thing over there of the car or like you can have an opinion because the car is an opinion. It's another person's opinion. So I think it's easy and normal, natural to critique it and choose to like or not. And but a tree, we just accept it. You know, a tree Mm -hmm. is a result of an ecosystem. It's a truthful result of predefined or defined context. And I feel like that's to me the truth. That's what I'm looking for is how to grow solution that's in tune with the ecosystem that we build around it. But we build around it. That ecosystem is the difference. And that's what you're pointing towards. And what I'm getting at is once.
4: Yeah. I'm also looking at those trees and saying, hey, that one looks great for shade. And maybe I'd like to camp underneath that one but that one over there would make a great Christmas tree. Okay. So I'll, I'll remember it for that reason. No, no totally.
2: And uh, you, that makes perfect, perfect sense. And for me, if let's say camping was the, the perfect tree for camping would have been one of those components in, in, our, in our curation, then how do we then get Todd or the designer out of the way and get to a result that, that hits exactly with truthful result? Because I might have an opinion of what I think camping's Oh, it's cool for camping. And you might mm-hmm. disagree with that. And that's where it fails. For me, that's where design for me gets complicated. and I don't want to complicate it. I want the truth to be there. If that makes sense. Yeah,
4: I, it does. And I have to factor in all of these different human opinions in addition to all of this different information in the ecosystem and distill it down to what mm. you interpret to be the most truthful truth in there.
2: Right, and that goes back to the poetry. That goes back to yeah. the How can we hit the one thing that's the most meaningful and not overcomplicated? And, and that actually takes me to another principle. This is a chemistry principle. Ooh, I like it. Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, you sh- it's worth a quick Google. It's called irreducible complexity. That sounds fancy. Mm. It actually sounds way fancier than it is. It comes from chemistry because a chemical compound, let's say H2O, you wouldn't have H1O and have water. Mm-hmm. H2O is water. So it's the most reduced essential version.
4: Is it sort of, of like something. a prime number?
2: Yeah, exactly. If you, exactly. If you go one more less, it fails. So, okay. But the interesting thing is you take quite complex chemical compounds. I mean, they're extremely complex, some of them. But you still can't take away, let's say, one mm-hmm. hydrogen. It fails. And I think that's super interesting. I'm in the boat of people say you're a minimalist and all this, like, couldn't be further than the truth. For me, I think about design as essentialism and it's a very additive process. Minimalism is to me a reductive process. Reductive process means you've had things there you didn't need and you're shaving them away. Like, why would they be there in the first place? So we're adding as we need and then we stop the second we've added the minimum of what we need for it to to succeed, so it's the most essential version of itself, which is this irreducible complexity could not be reduced any further. That's Mm. what we want it to be. Does that make
4: sense? Yes, I like it. I I get a particular arousal when people talk about (laughs) design in science
5: terms.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you, because you've clearly thought so carefully about the nature of your work and how you approach it, and you sound like you've got it all figured out. And, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I mean that in a, in a very complimentary way, but we all have Achilles heels yeah. or kryptonite. And so I'm wondering in this whole process of you distilling things down to irreducible complexity, is there, is there a part of that, that, that hangs you up regularly that as a human,
2: Oh yeah. Doing all this yeah. work. No, I mean,
4: you have to get out of your own way. Yeah.
2: It's- No, no, absolutely. I'm infinitely frustrated. And every project we work on, I'm so frustrated because it's impossible to get fully out of the way. And it annoys the hell out of me. And I hate that we still have to physically make it. It has to come out of a tool or it has to fit in a box or like there's something that has to happen that I have to put a just blatant opinion on and to make it finished like there's always something because it's not a computer program it's not in nature we don't have millions of years of evolution we don't have it's just me and a handful of folks that we're trying to figure it out and we're, we're doing the best we can so there's a human aspect of it that frustrates me that but it has to exist because it's made by we are the people making the car we can't make this beauty of the tree we can't make the beauty of a butterfly and how incredible this, this organism has evolved like what it is and how the colors work and how the refraction works to create color. Like we can't, we can't invent these things. And and that frustrates me to the to, to degree you cannot imagine. And, but it, the beauty there for me is I can appreciate, I can go outside with you and we can look at this tree to camp under and I can sit there and really appreciate it. Cause I feel like going back to the drawing, I can take it in, for its incredible complexity and really appreciate that because I'll never be able to arrive there. So at least I can feel like I can soak that in and then go back and do my best to, to get as close as I can. So at least that's the way I, I, I try to process the world around us and, and at the same time live with frustration that, you know, you'll never be as good as, as nature has so beautifully solves everything.
3: So besides this Back and forth tug of war you have with nature. Do you have any other, I guess, concerns or worries in general about you know your work, your life? I mean, in an existential way, in a philosophical way. Yeah. Do you have like any neuroses
4: that like you have to contend with? I mean, like
2: everyone, I probably have more than most because (laughs) I'm trying. I feel like, I mean. I think part of this wanting to get out of the way is uh, probably some other insecurity. I'm like, why does anybody want to hear what I have to say? So, like, there's probably something in there I haven't really touched on that I'm intentionally avoiding, but I feel like we're working so hard to keep this process so pure and to get out of the way and to arrive at these super truthful results. And then I present it and I feel like, but does anybody actually care? You know, there's that's a huge deal and that's a big, mm. you know, fear of ours. And then and I guess one of the neuroses is also within our industry because what we're doing, it's difficult. <laughs> and, and I don't even think our industry understands it or appreciates it. So, and that kind of depressed me a little bit because I feel like we're really trying to scratch surfaces that are deeper than even we understand. And I feel like the industry is like, yeah, but if it's pretty, that's all we care about.
5: Right. You know? and,
2: I, and I feel like that frustrates me and sort of saddens me a little bit. And, so I do feel a little bit of an outlier sometimes in our, in our industry and it's easy to make beautiful things. It's really easy. It's really easy to do cool, beautiful things. And when I'm surrounded by it all day long, I see it everywhere. It's really hard to make those same beautiful, beautiful things be commercial, be meaningful, be long lasting, be everything that we want it to be and make an impact in life, make an impact in the business and, and do all these things. You know, that's really challenging and really hard. That's why we call ourselves now strategic designer. I'm not sure what that means to people, but there's plenty of folks that when I finish talking about what we do and how we help them, they're like, you're not a designer. This is something else. And we don't know how to frame it because designer here means I make something in my workshop. I sell 10 at a show. You know, I'm a designer maker. Like that's not what I do. And I'm not interested in doing that. I'm not good at doing that. So that's like what Tom said. I'm interested in the business of design and I don't think you just call Tom a designer. There's something more there. And I think there's, and it's not belittling anyone else. It's just saying it's different. It's just different. And, and when I walk into a meeting just to introduce what we do, it's, oh, okay, you guys make design as if they know what the heck that means. And so there's this whole undoing of what a designer is before we can start to talk about what we do. And so that part to me is interesting and, and also frustrating.
4: Yeah, no, I feel your frustration on that. Like it is very discouraging to have people have their predisposed notions of what a designer does before you even walk in there and are are able to communicate all the layers of what you do. And so, yeah, one of the things that Jamie and I, I think are really interested in doing with this podcast is helping people understand how to think about design as not just as narrow as it's oh, absolutely. sometimes I'm understood totally
2: to, to be. I'm so happy to hear that. And that's what I mentioned early, early on, is design has so many shapes and sizes and, and flavors, you know, and I think that's what's yeah. so beautiful about it.
3: it. It has a serious marketing problem. And that's right. I think that... We, like we talked about in the beginning, we need to start introducing kids to what design is at an earlier age so that they understand it's not just making something really pretty or painting something a certain color. It's about rethinking the world around us and how we can solve problems. You know, it's not just aesthetics.
2: Completely. Isn't that beautiful?
4: It's beautiful.
2: Right.
4: Irreducible
3: complexity is beautiful. That's <laughs> poetry. <laughs> I mean, it
4: is
5: to me
3: absolutely great. I would like to know, well, actually, our listeners probably want to know, too, like, what are you working on that you can talk about? Is there anything you're really excited about that's happening with your studio <laughs> or any projects that yeah, you have coming so up?
2: Yeah, so we've been doing some fun things. We're spending a lot of energy in creative direction. So we're helping a few, few companies in the contract furniture world. So in the workplace furniture world, like, so like hospitality seating and workplace seating and such and helping these companies position. And at the same time, helping them identify new products, new designers, opportunities, and really being partner with them and building their business. And so that's been super, super exciting. And we're affecting a good percentage of of actually the industry as a whole, which is kind of interesting. So we we can shape how, for example, my son in, oh my God, 15 years, (laughs) when he goes into hopefully the workforce or not, if he does, he'll be affected by the work we're doing today. And I think that's interesting. And Mm. we're plugging in a lot of human science into the work we're doing. What I mean by that is circadian studies, biological light, in understanding how, for example, the light that's in our world today, LED light has got a lot of bad things in terms of affecting our circadian clock, and our circadian clock has been well established affects our health significantly. So we're, we've been on a mission in the last few years on getting circadian light into the workplace, eventually into life in general, so that we'll have healthy light in our lives. Mm. And that's, I think, really, really important. It helps also with jet lag. There's a whole host of other things that come connected with that, not just daily life. And so we're we're moving very aggressively on that. We're doing next-generation task chair, which is really exciting. Uh, that will mm-hmm. be ready in the spring, and, and that should be pretty cool. It's really about, you know, I don't think any of us want to work in our parents' sort of speak office, so we're a big part of helping shed the corporate tone off of the workplace and mm. off of work tools and things like this. So the task chair we're coming out with is not a jelly or a gray plastic machine. It's instead something that you might even put in your home, and but it has all the ergonomic properties in need of a, of a full-blown task chair. So it's yeah. really kind of a cool balance. We're working on color corrective eyewear. This is sort of interesting helping... Helping companies not only sell more glasses because they can sell glasses to people that don't need to wear corrective lenses because now they can wear glasses that help see color. And, you know, one out of four men are colorblind. Yeah. So there's a weird mix from human science to product design of furniture to creative direction and strategies and this kind of crazy hodgepodge. But that's what makes it super fun because every day it's completely different from the last.
4: Yes, well, I would love to be a fly on the wall in your studio because it sounds like you're learning a lot of cool stuff all the oh, time. that's the hope. <laughs> Do you want to please tell our <laughs> listeners where they can keep tabs on all these projects, like your website and your social media?
2: Website is com and surprisingly, Instagram is also toddbraucher. So that's, that's us and same with Twitter. And anyone who would love to just ping us if you have any questions or want to learn more or even drop by the studio uh, happy to just pop a note and you're more than welcome we'll schedule a time and pop on in and share with what, what's going on
4: Ooh, Fun. thanks Todd thanks Todd very fascinating
5: thanks guys thank
2: you
4: I feel like a sponge and now I was I was dry when we started and now I'm full like I just soaked up so much I want to say knowledge, but it's really more like this style
3: of thinking or something. Yeah, I feel like I got some perspective because he does a different kind of design and there's a lot of thinking and research and, you know, strategy behind what he does. And I really didn't understand it until having this conversation with him. And I still don't really fully understand what he does because it seems way over my head. But I got like a better understanding of what strategic design is and how important it is to the design ecosystem. And yet it's, you know, design can unfortunately be watered down to just being like making things pretty or making things, you know, a certain color or a certain way. And I, it's not like that. There's so much more that goes into it. But what I really liked about what he talked about was the purity of it all and trying to remove the human factor from it to like kind of distill it to its natural, not really natural, but like as natural as you can possibly get state. And I think that those analogies really helped me understand better what he was trying to convey and what he's trying to do with his work.
4: Yes, because I don't think he's necessarily scrubbing out the human as much as he's scrubbing out a personal opinion, personal Well, that's what I mean, like the people who
3: are working on it, like removing them from having too much, like tainting it too much to the point where it's more about the people who made it than the end
4: user, you're right. It's more like an anthropology because I, th- I do think he's still I mean, y- you'd have to worry about humans on the user end of things if you're talking about healthy right. lighting and circadian rhythms and all of that. But yeah, it's not about opinion and personal style. you know i I wrestle with his frustration over being labeled a designer and then having people have this really like sort of superficial view of what a designer does. I totally hear that, and I his tendency is to want to sort of change the language by calling himself a strategic designer so that people have to ask him what he does and he gets an opportunity to explain it. I don't know how I feel about just in general, like, should we be, you and me, should we be helping society understand the depth of design so that design can reclaim the importance that it deserves? Or should we be continually evolving and coming up with new ways to describe design and sort of running away from this superficial reputation. I don't know. That's not even about Todd, really. It's just it's about cultural understanding of what designers do.
3: No, I think you bring up a really good point because design does have a serious marketing issue, but also a serious issue of the understanding of what a designer is and what they do. And it, it's hard because there's so many different types of designers yeah. that it, I mean, even architects could be considered designers and, and you know, it, it's a very broad term. And it I think is. that that's the problem is it's been funneled down into this one little thing when it's in fact like so much more. And I don't know if it's better if we break it off into specific disciplines or types of designers, like, Oh, I'm a, a, you know, a, strategic designer, or I'm an industrial designer, or I'm this or I'm that. Or if there's a way to get that superficial idea of designer as being just like making pretty things aside and like try to get back to what it originally is. But then if we do that, like it's, if I say I'm a designer, then what does that even mean? Like, how do you know what I do? If I really just say like, I'm a designer.
4: Right. And and if we compared some of the guests on our show obviously a lot of them work in very different disciplines or in very different ways right appealing to very different things like for instance Nate Berkus is all about helping you inhabit your space in a way that like you know tells your story that is not what Todd Breacher is doing right and yet they're both really important and (laughs) but I do love how he dissects something out into all of the different layers and aspects and components and then looks at this all as data points and then distills it down, like he said, to that irreducible complexity that is what he interprets to be the most truthful realization of that ecosystem.
3: I do have one little issue with his, like, nature analogy. Mm, hmm Because... Unless it's been completely untouched by humans, like, what is actual nature at this point? Like, I think so many things that we touch have been, like, nature gets affected by us because we inhabit these spaces or we decide, like, trees should grow here or we plant seeds, you know? Like, we've already, like, fucked with all of it almost, right? Right, and who's to say the trees
4: in Central Park aren't like stunted because of the exhaust fumes, you know, or like all human intervention. Yeah, like there's
3: like so many, right but I would also argue that aren't we all part of nature and like a natural process that creates a human and a brain that functions the way that our actual brain is functioning individually so aren't we all like part of nature so like anything that we would come up with or interfere with is also part of that process of nature cuz it's evolution and it's it's naturally evolving so even if we're projecting something onto an object it's still a natural process because it's it's not a computer it's not a machine it's a human like making that do you know what I mean? I mean, it's very out there, but I, I still feel like... Like everything that's a product
4: of man is still a product of nature somehow, because we we all exist in a natural world.
3: Yeah. But I get
4: what he's saying, too. <laughs> you can't really divorce how human impact has has affected nature. But if you can, you can still look at things like trees and say, OK, we understand how they grow, but it would be really hard for us to to grow them to function as perfectly as they do. And so it's still a good example of
3: Yeah, what but might even be. like what we know. This is so out there, dude. <laughs> <laughs> that's because it's late in the day. But even okay. like what we know as a tree. Like how do we know that that's actually like what trees purely are? Like cuz when was the last time you studied a tree in a place that no nobody has ever touched? you know what I'm saying? Well,
4: yeah, never, never. I've never witnessed a tree that hasn't been wit- witnessed by
3: another person. Or affected by something, whether it's fumes, like you said, people, farmers, you know.
4: Any, Acid rain. And yeah,
3: exactly. Anything that we've done to our environment. I mean, how do we really know that what we're witnessing in nature is truly its original natural state?
4: I don't think we do
3: no I think this conversation is way (laughs) like crazy for this episode but I just wanted to bring all of that up because I just was thinking a lot about it Yeah, needed to get it out
4: we don't (laughs) Jamie we have to go to space the new frontier
3: yeah there we go so we can fuck up a whole other (laughs) (laughs) ecosystem (laughs) with all of our designed objects and shit
4: Thank you for listening. Hey, you guys, we've got a challenge for you. Will you see if you can make Alexa, Siri, or Google Home, or whatever smart speaker you use play Clever? Clever is available through TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, and pretty much wherever you can get podcasts. So it should work. But we want to hear your results. Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Clever Podcast to let us know what you find out.
3: And please subscribe to Clever on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and see images of Todd's work. Also, we'd love it if you would subscribe to Clever's YouTube page. And you can also connect with us on the usual places like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Clever Podcast. We love hearing from you guys. This episode of Clever was edited by Ty Navarres and Alex Perez with music by L ten Eleven.